Welcome to Books and Beyond with your host, Alison. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl and she works in a library. No my haida mai, kia ora and welcome to our Books and Beyond Literary Lounge with Alison and Enika. Kia ora Enika. Kia ora Alison. Well look on today's show we're going to talk about what we've been reading and we'll give you an update on the state of our TBR lists, our, <laughs> our to be read list and then we're going to have a hot tip for you. So it's a real mixed bag today. Yeah, it really is. So just hang on for the ride because none of these things really connect to each other very easily. <laughs> but let's just let's just go for it, eh? Um, I'm going to start with one that I read a couple of months ago and which is still lingering in my mind. So I thought, well, that's a good sign. Let's let's kick off with this sure one. Sure is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Now this is an Australian book called The Yield by Tara June Winch. It was written in 2019, and we've got um, copies in lots of different formats. Um, now this book, there was actually a 15 year gap between Tara June Winch's first novel, Swallow the Air, which came out in 2006, and the publication of The Yield. Um, in between, she's written some short stories. But I tell you what, it was so worth the wait. Um, the Yield has won a slew of awards over 2020, including the Miles Franklin, which is obviously one of yeah, Australia's biggest ones. Um, it's a really heartfelt and so skillfully written tribute to um, Winch's own family and her Wiradjuri um, culture, um, showing intergenerational trauma that's been caused by the long shadow of colonialism in Australia, particularly around the loss of land and of language. Now, it starts from a similar place to a book I reviewed, um, I think, end of last year mm. called Melissa Luke, um, by Melissa Lukashenko, uh, called Too Much Lip. Um, August Gondawendi is coming home to Australia after um, quite a long time overseas um, to attend the funeral of her beloved grandfather, Albert. Um, her home is a small town in central New South Wales. Um, it's been built on stolen Wiradjuri land and it's soaked in their blood. Um, and unfortunately, Albert's death leaves the family home under threat from a company that's claiming the right to mine tin on a really uh, huge scale that's going to drastically affect the town. Now, the only way that um, the Gondawendi family can legally fight to protect the land that's been stolen from them and what they've been living on, um, kind of on borrowed time, is to present cultural evidence and artefacts that prove that they have a long-standing link to the land. Now, it's not an easy ask when so many aspects of their own culture have been just decimated by the, the you know, decades and hundreds of years, really, of violence and suppression of of their culture. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like it's almost an impossible task, isn't it? That's to right. To try and prove something like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, August has to go really deep. She takes it on as her mission and um, to as part of her reconnecting um, with her home and her family. And um, you sort of see her doing that while she's mourning her grandfather. And she's also carrying um, memories of her sister Jeddah, who they who she grew up with with her grandparents, and who disappeared as a child without explanation and with no no kind of sign mm. of what's happened. 
um, she sees Jeddah living sort of on the land alongside her with animals, birds around her. That really reminded me of um, Oe, with the oh, birds yes. and the ghosts. Um, you know, that notion that those who have passed still walk among mm. us. Um, that's really prevalent, particularly in Indigenous cultures, uh, many Indigenous cultures. Now, there's three strands to the story. So you have August and her family, um, her present-day family. Um, you also have this beautiful story um, coming through, which is in the form of a dictionary written by her grandfather, Albert. He's written a dictionary in his final months of life as a gift for his family, capturing as many Wiradjuri words and definitions as he can remember and linking them back really personally to his own memories and the culture and the history of his people, which is so deep but also so damaged. Mm -hmm. um, the third strand of the novel is a series of um, letters written in the 19th century by the missionary who's been sort of given, and I'm putting that in mm. quote marks, um, the Gondwanese ancestral lands in order to build a mission station for saving the souls of the people who, of course, were the original inhabitants. Now, the Wiradjuri end up having little choice but to live and work there in kind of a a weird mix of um, kind of a protection situation and a sort of a slave labour situation um, so that they can basically remain on their own land near the traditional resources that they want to remain near um, and they but they only really receive a small measure of protection which is often breached um, yeah, by, by other people mm. in the area. So these three strands are so powerful and they create this really multi-layered story um, with so much depth. Um, I came to it really fresh. I hadn't read um, Winch's previous novel or any of her writing before and I was just blown away by her writing. It's really evocative and she's got this skillful way of painting her characters and her settings that just puts you right in the picture and um, and and throws you deeply deeply into it emotionally. Mm. She's got this really clear and considered focus and you can just tell um, how carefully she's woven it to create this one integrated whole. There's so much deep love and hurt shared in this book and, um, yeah, it's so powerful. It's really powerful. She makes it look quite easy, but it's really not easy to write like that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I can see why it's it has stayed with you. Actually, yeah. yeah. And I've read uh, her uh, short stories oh. and they blew me away as well. Oh. But similar sort of strands of of deep trauma yeah. running through. Yeah. Yeah, I can't wait to read more from her. I really can't. Um, I would recommend it for fans of Oe. So if you've jumped oh, into yes. Oe and you want more like that, um, Yagiasi's Homegoing and maybe even like books like the Poisonwood Bible. Oh, it's got yes. that kind of um, dense, it's literary but still very accessible and mm. quite um, immersive. Yeah. And I'll put a few more um, recommendations for a couple of other um, Indigenous Australian authors' um, books in, in our blog. Yeah. Oh, thanks for that. No, that sounds amazing. Well, look, I um, now for something completely different cool. to, to a large extent. Um, I'm going to take you on some time travel, Ooh, Inika, which thank you. I know you enjoy that sort of thing. Now, this one's called um, We Ride Upon Sticks, and it's by the author Quan Barry, published um, within the last six months or mm. so. So think of um, Sal the Salem, Massachusetts witch trials in 1692, and then fast forward about 
300 years to 1989 <laughs> and we come to Massachusetts and the Danvers High School girls hockey team. And so, okay. <laughs> yeah, I knew you'd love this. So, But Danvers is the real life place where the Salem witch trials took place all those centuries ago. So let's um, throw it all together. You've got witchcraft, hockey, teenage girls, <laughs> slumber parties and late 1980s pop culture and some social criticism. What more could a girl want? <laughs> um, so there, there's a very serious um, undertone to this book. But um, the Danvers High field hockey team, uh, they're on an epic losing streak and one of the team members decides that she'll dabble in a bit of harmless witchcraft <laughs> to see if this will turn around the team's fortunes. And it does, um, curiously. <laughs> so the the team um, as a whole decides to up the ante and because surely casting more spells will mean that their hockey will improve, right? You know, <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Now, oh, Inika, I so wanted to love this book. Mm. I really did. But I have to be honest here and it didn't grab me like other books have and, and like the other books I'll talk about today. Uh. Um, it might just be me, I, d I don't know, but the first issue I had with the book is that I couldn't work out who was narrating the story. Okay. And for me, that must be an important thing. And the number of characters and the quite intricate plot details did make it hard for me to get into the story. Ah. Uh. Um, I really like the fact that it's a coming-of-age book. Um, love those. But I wondered if perhaps the paranormal aspects of the book lost me. Uh-huh. I don't know. Although, having said that, do you know what one of my favourite TV shows is at the moment? Is Wellington Paranormal. Oh, I love it's it too. fantastic. <laughs> um, what else? Or was it the constant references to the um, heartthrob of the 1980s, Emilio is Estevez. I, sorry, I can never <laughs> pronounce his name. He was real heartthrob. But of course, all of this is before your time, Annika. So oh, no, I remember Emilia. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But um, it, look, it does include social criticism and um, references to the power imbalances and injustice of the time. And I, I liked that. We do get a good at quite a good look at the experience of racism in 1980s America from the points of view of the Asian-American, African-American and mixed-race characters. Mm. And I think that's really good. Now, the author, um, Amy Kwan Barry, she's quoted as saying, and I thought this is a good quote, if you think back to the 80s and those John Hughes movies like Pretty in Pink, there are things that nowadays are very problematic, homophobic and sexist. Mm. I, I would probably include racist in there as well. Mm. Um, and she's really interested in rethinking the 80s. Let's push past the stereotypes. Find out who were these people really. Mm. So, you know, it is interesting to revisit films and anthems of our youth and examine them through our current lens or lenses. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, Amy Quanberry, she's an interesting woman. She's a poet and a novelist, um, professor of English at the University of Wisconsin. But she was born in Saigon, um, which is now known as Ho Chi Minh City. Mm. Um, so that was in the south, south of Vietnam in 1973. And it was a very dangerous place to be at mm. the time. And her birth mother made an adoption plan and Amy 
ended up being adopted by a white American couple. Ah. So she grew up in Massachusetts, um, even played hockey for that particular high school in mm. 1989. She's really one to watch. I like her, her writing. I'd be interested to know what you thought of the book. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, I recommend it. Didn't grab me hugely. Yeah. But now look, It'll have its reader, right? Yeah, yeah, oh, definitely. And I may not be the right person mm. for the book. Now, look... Um, I could jump to another one, also set in the 1980s, with a str- very strong Vietnamese connection. Oh, yeah. And this one has completely grabbed me. Now, it's called The Committed, and it's by a writer called Viet Tan Nguyen. Um, it's only just been published, so it's 2021 um, publishing date. Mm-hmm. Now, Viet Tan Nguyen, he's one of America's most highly regarded writers. Um, it's his second novel, and it's actually the sequel to this to his debut novel, which was called The Sympathizer. Mm-hmm. A lot of people will have heard that. Now, it won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction in 2016. That's right. But um, you don't need to read the books in order. Uh, they do work as standalone works. And I must confess, I haven't read The Sympathizer yet. It's, it's one that I... I want to. Mm, me too. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it had, you know, rave reviews. So Nguyen left Vietnam with his parents in 1975. He was only four years old at the time. And they were refugees from the war in Vietnam and they were bound for America. He's often talked about that indelible early experience of being a refugee. And he says, we were the unwanted, the unneeded and the unseen, invisible to all but ourselves. Mm. It's a very moving quote, isn't it? Mm. Because, you know, for for decades, that master narrative of the Vietnam War, it's been... Um, created by American books and movies. So true. Isn't it? And it? Yes. And we've read the stories of the impact that the fighting had on the bodies, the minds and the hearts of, of mainly white American men. Yes. Not yep. all white, but because um, we do know that the Indigenous um, Americans and African Americans paid a terrible price for that war. Yes. But um, Nguyen observed um, that with Vietnam, it's the first time history, that history has been written by the losers. Yeah, because it's usually <laughs> it's really written by the winners, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, that's if, true. If there's ever a winner and a loser. But um, so that his first book challenged that popular narrative around the Vietnam War. But in this book, The Committed, his the narrative being challenged is the one of empire. Mm. Um, and he starts with the French occupation of what was then known as Indochina in the late 1800s. But um, and he um, uh, then takes you through to the sort of the division of Vietnam and North and South in the, in the 1950s. But this story is um, populated with characters from Vietnam, Algeria, the west part of Africa mm. that was colonised by the French. Um, and in fact, the whole colonial legacy of France comes under scrutiny. And he doesn't stop really until he cuts the whole of the European empire down to the bone to expose, you know, what he calls that self-deceiving lie that still holds in some quarters that empire was a benign civilising, I'm using air quotes, civilising mission, and which 
um, has that similarity to the Australian experience, mm, doesn't completely, it? And yes. of course, our our own here. Um, now, I'm probably not doing it justice, but it's a the, this book. It's a literary thriller about a double agent. So I love a good spy novel. Yeah, but it's a, really a brilliant novel of ideas. So it's about friendship, loyalty, greed, addiction, big on that, um, mm. and extreme ideologies. Now, the scenes in Paris are amazing. I felt I could almost taste and smell the, the coffee and brioche, um, of course, made Vietnamese style, oh, which is the best. But it's exquisite. Um, and I was showing you earlier, I, I can't talk about it on the radio, but the book <laughs> cover is one of the best I've ever seen. It's a very so, cool book cover. Isn't it great? Google it. Google it, Google yes. It. NSFW, not safe That's for work. absolutely, <laughs> yes. So I, I'm sorry for revealing that. down the tone. Oh, yes. <laughs> but, oh, man, this is a good one. Really good. I, I can't wait to receive that on my, my cold shelf. <laughs> I really can't. Not that it needs any more books. Uh, well, jumping from a literary thriller to L.A.Y.A., this time. Mm. Um, I took a little step into the Young Adult Fiction Collection and read Concrete Rose by Angie Thomas. So this is another 2021 publication. A Concrete Rose is, as I said, a, um, a teens novel. It's set in LA in the 90s and in a neighbourhood where drugs, gangs and gun violence are really a constant. Um, this neighbourhood was also featured in um, Angie Thomas's previous books, The Hate You Give, um, quite a famous one mm. um, you may have heard of or seen the movie, and On the Come Up, which is her second one. Um, now, Concrete Rose is a prequel to um, The Hate You Give, which came out just a few years ago. And um, the main character in this one is Maverick Carter, who in The Hate You Give is star. the uh, main character, Starcutter's dad. Oh, yes, I get it now. Yeah, yeah, so it's 17 years prior to the events in The Hate You Give, and um, Maverick is a teenager. Now, you don't have to have read The Hate You Give to enjoy um, Concrete Rose. It actually stands completely alone. Um, you'll appreciate the writing and story regardless, and then you may you could easily jump into The into the Hate You Give, actually, mm. and tw- you know flip them around. Yeah, it wouldn't be a problem. Now, Maverick is, um, he's African-American, he's black, he's 16. He's more or less on track at school when we first start the book, and he's best friends with his cousin who tries to keep an eye out um, for him. But he's also the son of a former head of a local gang who's currently in prison for dealing. And this brings lots of additional peer pressure and expectations around the way that his life's going to go and, um, you know, what he's going to achieve as well. Um, now, Mav's a t- typical teenager. He loves playing basketball. He lives for the laughs, but he's making a lot of impulsive decisions as well. He's got a really good heart. Um, he has got a, a strong family despite their their issues um, and lots of good intentions, but he's got the lure of the money that he can make dealing drugs. Um, his mother is working two jobs and always sort of on the breadline, and he wants to be able to provide more for her and for other people in his life. He's in love with his high school girlfriend, Lisa, who's who's a really smart young woman. She's got high hopes for getting both of them out of that neighbourhood and into university so they can have a better future. Now, it goes a bit skew with um, Maverick has a one-night stand with another young woman when they're on a break, when mm. Lisa and he are on a break, and he finds out that he's a father at the tender age of 16. He's literally left holding the baby. Um, he has to learn how to look after a little newborn. 
He's juggling school and work commitments, and he's still trying to kind of woo back his um, his girlfriend Lisa, who's obviously not not particularly happy with the situation. Yeah, um, it's a lot to be on a sixteen year old's plate, particularly in a stressful environment that he lives in, and there's lots more that gets piled on him. Um, as the book goes on. I won't tell you um, what happens, but um, through it all, he decides that whatever he does, he's going to try and be a better dad than his dad was to him mm-hmm. and to try and be as present as possible. It's a real fast-paced ride, this book. Um, there's birth and death, love and revenge, mystery, twisty bits, some laughs and lots of tears. Andy uh, Thomas is a really amazing writer. Yeah, she is. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. really authentic dialogue, nuanced characters um, and an emotional depth that you don't often see in teen mm-hmm. writing. Um, lots of fun 90s references mm-hmm. here too. Yeah. So jumping um, from daddies to mummies, I um, I also read another 2021 book this last weekend called The Push by Audrey Audrain. Audrain. Now this one is on everybody's lips right now. It's flying out the door because you probably spotted it. Mm. And now we've heard of daddy issues. The Push is all about the mummy issues and particularly mummy-daughter issues. And in this book, they go really deep. The main character, Blythe, grew up in a household where her mother's mental health issues and the the prescription medication she has to deal with it leaves her really largely unable to care for Blythe. Um, Her mum's trapped and disconnected and Blythe becomes you know very lonely and neglected in the best of situations and but when her mother's at her worst she often is experiencing these cruel punishments and frightening situations that come out of her mother's anger Mm. and frustration and trauma really. Um, at 12, Blythe's mother actually leaves um, Blythe and her family and begins a new life, breaking off all contact. So there's this residual um, unfinished business mm. between them. Now, as Blythe grows up, she carries a lot of shame from that childhood. Um, she's h- trying to hide her past trauma and, and appear normal, like everyone else, with a normal mother. But she just hides what's what's happened in the background. Um, she finds um, a lovely boyfriend from a wealthy family. Um, but she wants to be a good mother and she just doesn't know whether that's going to be in her in the future. Anyway, she does fall pregnant and she gives birth to a daughter called Violet. Things aren't right from the start, though. It's a difficult birth. Violet is not able to get into a sleep routine and Blythe um, suffers from some postnatal depression. Soon she starts to doubt her ability to be able to mother her own daughter. Um, She's comparing herself to everyone around her. It seems so easy and natural for Mm -hmm. them. And then as Violet gets older, Blythe is starting to notice these strange incidences happening around her that that, um, cause her to believe that Violet has a lack of empathy and some cruel tendencies that are starting to come out, even though she's just a little one. No one else really believes her, and so she starts to feel like she's imagining it. She's not sure if it's to do with her mothering or the fact that she wasn't mothered well herself. Oh, this is really tense and emotional scenes in this book. Um, we get to see her mum's childhood, her grandmother's childhood. Audrain's really looking at that nature and nurture debate. There's lots about the generational trauma, attachment theory. There's some gaslighting. Um, wow. And there's also mm. just the possibility that Violet is just bad to the bone, mm. even oh. though she's just a child. Yeah, this is such a tense read. Um, Audrain was actually a publishing executive for many years, so she's brought all her experience of what will grab readers to this book. Um, It's taut and tense and compelling, and um, she dives really deep into that high emotion between mothers and daughters and these really grubby and 
frankly, quite disturbing aspects of motherhood that are quite often just brushed under the carpet mm. or not talked about. Yeah, she looks right into the abyss with wide open eyes. Um, I read it one day, couldn't put it down. There could be some triggering points in this book, but um, if you feel you can go there, I would really recommend you do. It's a wild ride. Wow, that mm. sounds amazing. Oh, look, thanks for that. Well, look, I've got something that's perhaps slightly lighter. Um, <laughs> Got mummy stuff, mother issues in it as well. Mm. But it's actually a delightful read. And it's called Looking for Eliza. And it's by um, a writer whose name is Leif Arbuthnot, um, who's also, she's a, um, she's not, she works in publishing as well mm. in, in the UK. And so it's a new book. So um, it's about a widow, uh, an older widow, a millennial. And lots of cups of Lapsang Souchong tea, oh, which is quite yummy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, it's a heartfelt story about an unlikely friendship between two lonely women in Oxford in the UK, and it's set in and around Oxford University. So Ada is a widow, she's recently widowed, and she's in her 70s, but she doesn't feel as she puts it like a little old lady. Um, a lot of women like that, actually. Now, she's a poet, and she had been happy to put her husband's career ahead of her own. And her husband was a professor at the university. So Ada's um, really grieving, and she's lonely. So she puts up a an ad to rent a granny um, in an attempt to reconnect with people and recover from her grief. Mm. Now, across the road from her lives uh, Eliza, um, a, a graduate student at Oxford University. Now, Eliza's a young lesbian woman. She's from Cumbria. She's an outsider, and um, she's got short pink hair, which <laughs> is really cool, actually. But she's struggling with her with money and her own mother mothering issues. Mm. So like Ada, the old woman, she's also mourning a relationship, but it was a less happy one. Um, her ex, Ruby, had abused her emotionally for a number of years. Mm. So Eliza answers the rent-a-granny ad, and the two women begin to bond and learn about each other's lives and points of view. They um, talk a lot about podcasts too, yeah. in the book, which is nice, <laughs> over their cups of tea. So look, it's all set against the back round of the Brexit vote, really unsettling time mm. in the UK. Um, it's certainly, so it will always be rooted in that particular time. And politics don't really take over, but the writer captures that awkwardness, I think, that you see in countries like Britain and America, where people don't want to ask others um how they voted. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think we might do it more here, but yeah, but they, quite touchy those divisions. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So there's heaps to identify with. Doesn't matter whether you're in your seventies or if you're a millennial or if you're somewhere in between. Um, and it really it reminded me um, of the Gail Honeyman book. Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. Ah, there's yes. Something, but I highly recommend it. It's a great one, actually. Oh, there's a few of those books about um, the sort of you know young young woman with an older woman, isn't mm, there? Um, the Lido mm. by Libby Page, I think it is, oh, is yes. another one which sounds a bit like this too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's more, there's more that unites us than divides us, really, oh. with these, isn't there? I, mean, I think that's what they're. Telling us I as well. think so. Yeah, and I, I would agree too. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, you know the to-be-read piles. Need <sighs> to tell you a bit about the state of these. <laughs> They're towering and 
too high to talk about. I can't even talk about mine. It's so high. <laughs> Is it triggering you? Yes, yeah. I am. <laughs> yes. So, and that's all to do with the backlog on the request shelves. And we'll let's blame the pandemic for that. <laughs> but um, I know I'm looking forward to diving into my TBR pile over East, the Easter weekend. Um, we've got a bit of grey sky looming, don't we? And we do. Four days off. We'll let you know how we get on. Yes, we'll have to compare notes after the break. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'll just quickly pop in a hot tip. Um, I, my hot tip is actually for Alison's last Auckland Library's blog post. Um, now, you, if you're a regular listener, you'll know that Alison recently interviewed um, the monetary mother of the nation, Mary Home. <laughs> and um, Alison, um, between Mary's wonderful recommendation and um, our Auckland Library resources, Alison's pulled together a really wonderful blog post, which is a real um, a one-stop shop for free financial literary resources. So we've got a mixture of Auckland Library resources in there and um, free resources as well and a little book list to dive into. In particular, we want you to check out the um, LinkedIn learning resources. Mm. Um, they've got heaps in terms of that financial management side of things, but so much more to be found. It's free to join for, for um, library members and you may have um, heard of it as Linda. Dot com before, but um, that's now been um, rebranded as LinkedIn Learning. So go and search LinkedIn Learning on Auckland Library's website. There's heaps to discover there. Yeah, it's a great resource, isn't it's it? It's wonderful. It's magnificent, yeah. Well, look, um, to our listeners, we just want to thank you for tuning in today and um, take care. Happy reading. Be kind to yourselves. Thanks once again. Thanks, Yenika. Haere rā. Ka kite anō. brought to you by Auckland Libraries. Find us online at aucklandlibraries.govt.nz and catch the program next Sunday at 9.35pm on 104.6 FM or anytime online at planetaudio.org.nz slash books and beyond. Every day.